A producer, a dramaturg or librettist, Jack Viertel has been called a sort of human encyclopedia of musical theatre. He has had a long and illustrious career producing theatre and musicals on Broadway and served as the dramaturg for Hairspray and Dear Evan Hansen. He will join Druid's artistic director, Gary Hines, in Galway this Sunday as part of a series of public readings that will explore plays written by Irish Americans and about Irish Americans. The series is called The Stars and Stripes Shaded Green. Jack has collaborated with Gary and Druid for many years and delighted to be joined by Jack Viertel from New York on the programme this evening. Jack, before we get in with to your connection with Druid and the, the series that you'll be involved in uh, this coming weekend, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Encore. This is a, a concert series that, that you are heavily involved in, dedicated to performing rarely heard American musicals, usually with their original orchestration. Uh, you were a producer uh, of Encore for, for 20 years. Just tell us about the, how that whole project came about and what it was about. Well, uh, and first of all, thank you for uh, such a beautiful uh, welcome, m- more than I deserve by far, and it's lovely to be with you, and I'll be with you corporeally tomorrow morning. <laughs> uh, I'm on a plane in a couple of hours. Encores uh, began as a, a, a sort of experimental series at a, a performing arts center called New York City Center, which had no musical theater program, although it had many other kinds of dance programs and things like that. And uh, w- w- there was very little money to do it with, relatively little money to do it with. And so we had to make drastic decisions about what we would feature and what we would not feature. And so the decision was taken to uh, produce these musicals for very brief runs, originally five performances, now seven, um, where the money would be spent on the orchestra and the size of the cast and presenting these things so that they sounded at least as close as we could get them to sounding the way they had sounded on opening night, however many years ago that had Mm. been. And the cost of that was almost no scenery, no costumes, very little choreography. It it grew larger from there, but that was the original concept. I guess and it, to let people hear, let the people hear musicals that they otherwise probably would never encounter again in their lifetime. I suppose a kind of a, a rehearsed read through or a rehearsed reading and and singing of a musical is is what was involved in some ways. This is a project that was it started back in 1994. Now I think of 1994 and I think of today, 2022. And when we get into the thorny area of, let's face it, some old musicals, there's racism in there, there's sexism in there, there's gender stereotyping in there, There's all, there are all sorts of difficulties in there. Were you coming across that and aware of it back in the 1990s or did that really only start to come to the fore in more recent years? Well, we were aware of it and we did uh, sort of doctor each project we did to the degree that we felt it was necessary but the necessity changed over the years as political attitudes and and awareness changed over the years. So things that we did in 1994 or five or six, we probably could not do the same way today, but we would have to find a way to, to mm. make them, uh, you know, w- make audiences welcome them rather than feel pushed away by them. And that's an ever evolving process, particularly here in the United States, where there's been so much of a movement um, toward uh, non-white BIPOC theatre artists. And I think it's a great movement, but it has absolutely changed what encores can and can't do and how they do it. I I, I guess, though, the real challenge there is, yes, you can change things, but then it becomes Jack Viertel or whoever is directing or whoever is producing um, the particular performance. It becomes their vision. How difficult is it to hold on 
to even the difficult aspects of some of some of the early works and and serve that vision truly without you know changing it all together it's it's a challenge but you know the uh, our uh our our mantra at Encores has always been leave no foot uh, leave no fingerprints. So mainly it's been a matter of trimming out, cutting, uh, sometimes rearranging certain things without trying to invent a new vision of it. The the idea is to hold to the vision, but uh, eliminate that which might give offense. And as, with some shows, it's impossible. There are some shows we did then that it would be impossible to do now, I think. So would you just set uh, them to the one side now? I think you set them to the one side. Yes, I don't know what else you would do. Um, and uh, although we also always have thought of it as a living museum, and, you know, a museum is given certain license that a current producing organization would not be given to say, look, this is how it was. We're not endorsing any of it, mm. telling you this is what it was. And it's a fine line between doing that and actually saying, well, that's a great theory, but actually you can't say that right now or you can't do that action right now. And I guess, you know, to to concentrate on on a potentially positive aspect of, of this type of thing as well, uh, if you are engaged in, in colorblind casting and, and if you're engaged in a, a more diverse type of uh, performer and presentation, I guess these shows can be critiqued and something can be added rather than taken away? Yes, I think so. Particularly, in a, I, I, and I'm a great believer in this, and uh, I, I worked for many years with the uh, famous black playwright August Wilson, who was a great believer in this. It's not a good idea to throw away your heritage. It's a good idea to recognize your heritage and then figure out what to do about it. So we have never tried to say these things never happened or mm. these ideas never were promoted. Uh, we've always tried to put them in the context of, yes, let's own them and 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 understand them. Now, it, it's harder to do in a musical in a way where, generally speaking, the you know the attempt is to amuse and entertain without making an audience think too hard. But um, but it's there even it, even in the in those cases. And I think we you know we've tried to find a a line where we're we're not giving offense, but we're admitting and 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 showing what was considered, you know, normal and acceptable in a different time in the very country we come from and the very people we're descended from. Uh, no point in closing your eyes to it, I guess, is, is ultimately what you're saying there, Jack. Uh, your relationship with Druid and Gary Hines began with the Broadway transfer of Martin McDonough's The Beauty Queen of Lenan. Uh, it also, th that collaboration with Gary includes the plays, uh, the play 16 Wounded, the musicals 1776 and Juno. This was uh, Mark Blitzstein's adaptation of O'Casey's Juno and the Paycock. But I've heard that you have said that um, 1776, the, uh, uh, the musical, which was directed by Gary Hines, was amongst the most successful productions that Encore produced. It was indeed, both from a, a point of view of the uh, critical reaction to it and the um, and the number of tickets sold. And those two things are often interrelated, as you know. Mm. Um, I was very excited when we, we decided to do 1776 in the year uh, that uh, turned out to be the year that Donald Trump got elected. But when there was going to be a presidential election, we thought this would be, you know, a, an enjoyable thing to to look at since it. It, it basically spends two and a half hours leading up to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Um, and it occurred to me as we were talking about it that the most fun way to do it would be to get Gary, who is not an American, uh, need not have any particular feeling about the, the signing of the Declaration of Independence and is keenly aware of what American history has been since that day. Um, 
to to look at it through those eyes rather than a standard musical theater director uh, just coming in and mounting the show. And indeed, uh, the show, although she didn't change a word of it, and we don't, um, featured a, 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 an attitude that came through of, uh, I wouldn't say cynicism, I don't think she's a cynical director, but skepticism. Um, you know, a, a, a gimlet-eyed view of what the founding fathers in the United States thought they were doing and what they actually ended up doing, which were not necessarily the same thing. And I guess, and where it is now, which might be a totally, which is the, a sequel that we'd all love to see presented in some kind of musical form. And to what extent do you think Hamilton has addressed maybe that period in a very new and exciting way? Very new and exciting, and it is more or less the same period. Uh, but uh, it's interesting that the day we announced that we were doing the show, uh, there was a tweet from Lin-Manuel Miranda, who, of course, wrote and mm. starred in Hamilton, uh, saying, I hope all the founding fathers will not be white. <laughs> and of course, they weren't. The actors were not. Um, and Gary said a wonderful thing about that, uh, which, I, which I have repeated endlessly, uh, and which I think is the key to this whole issue, which is the, the basic covenant between a, a, a production and the audience watching it is that an actor is a person who is pretending to be a different person. And the question is, how different will the audience accept or can they be made to accept? But there is no such thing as believing that the people up there are actually uh, themselves. They aren't. They're actors. They're pretending. Um, and so we stretched that as far to the limits as we could. And it has since been stretched much farther, uh, further. But, um, you know, I, I, I live by that 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 rule that Gary uh, lined, lined out to me during mm. the period we were doing that show. Well, if you're going to get a good answer to a question, Gary Hines might be a good woman to go and ask the question of because right. she'll give you a good question, a good answer generally. A musical version of Juno and the Peacock, simply called Juno, also directed by the aforementioned Gary Hines. It had a very troubled uh, production on Broadway in the late 1950s. Now, tell me the truth here, Jack. Why did it have a troubled production history? Is it because it's a load of you-know-what or were there other problems? Well, there were many problems, many, many problems. Uh, but I think the fundamental problem was, well, the fundamental, fundamental problem with the production was that you had stars who really were not perfectly cast and could not really sing Mark Blitzstein's music successfully. It's a wonderful, wonderful score, but Blitzstein is descended from, you know, uh, Kurt Weill and Bernstein, mm. Leonard Bernstein, and it's not, you know, it's not happy show tunes. Um, and I was also an opera composer. And uh, I don't think I don't think that the that the company that did the show originally w was really able to get their arms around it. And the director was fired out of town and a new director was brought in. But this was not a show that was that was going to succeed. Yeah. We did it principally for two reasons. Um, one was because I was dying to get Gary to do an encores. And I thought she's the only person who could possibly do this show and, and pull it off. And also because we loved the score so much and felt that it had never yeah. been sung properly. Um, but, you know, there's an, there's an interesting problem with Juno uh, that was explained to me by a student when I was teaching at New York University. Um, it was just his opinion, but I think it was the absolutely accurate opinion, which is why why are you doing this as a musical? What do you what do you bring to a property when you when you musicalize it? And he said to me, you know, My Fair Lady, which is based on Shaw's Pygmalion, mm. A perfectly wonderful, sturdy uh, political comedy with a bit of romance stirred in. And in the musical, Lerner and Loeb 
flipped the coin basically made it a made it a romance with some uh sexual politics involved and uh and added that glamour and and romance to it that the original play didn't have the problem with juno is that juno in the peacock already has all the poetry it needs you can, even with blitzstein's wonderful score you can't improve on that aspect mm. of it and it's a grim story that doesn't want to be glamorized even though much of it is comic and so there was there was literally no reason to make it into a musical. And and just out of interest, do we get the Dublin vernacular? Is it the words of O'Casey that are used in terms of the? Does Blitzstein set those to music, or is there a different uh, book used? Uh, it, it's as, it's as close as Blitzstein and the uh, librettist Joseph Stein, both of whom were Jews who were one generation away from being immigrants, mm. uh, could figure out to do. But they had O'Casey's play, of course, in front of them, and they used as much of it as they could. I would guess that if I showed it to you or any other, uh, you know, literate Irish um, person involved in 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 the language, you would find places where you would go, no, 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 that's not right. But much of it is right out of Blitzstein, uh, right out of uh, O'Casey. O'Casey. Yeah, yeah, and, and it has an innate musicality anyway, as you say. Setting it to music might only be gilding yeah. the lily in 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 some ways. Let let us move on to the the plays that will be spoken about and that are part of this uh, series of. Uh, events and conversations over the weekend. Um, few, and, and you're aware of, of the particular plays, I believe. Yes. Um, readings of Harvey by Mary Chase, Hogan's Goat by William Alfred, and The Matchmaker by Thornton Wilder. Um, maybe if, if, let's talk about Harvey by, by Mary Chase. By Irish Americans or about Irish Americans is the kind of the, the tagline that I've seen around the event. What is the story with Harvey by Mary Chase? Well, Harvey was a tremendously successful uh, comedy in its day, uh, still performed all the time over here, but it, 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 when it premiered, it was an enormous success and, in fact, won the Pulitzer Prize in the same year that uh, uh, the Glass Tennessee Williams' The Glass Menagerie opened. Mm. So, you know, it was considered quite a thing. Um, Mary Chase was uh, born to Irish parents. She had Irish uncles who, you know, sat around... The, the parlor in Denver, Colorado, telling stories and legends. And Harvey, which is about a man who is suspected of being uh, a hopeless alcoholic, although actually he's not, he's just mm. sort of a genius drinker, has a friend who is an invisible six-foot wh- white rabbit hookah. <laughs> and uh, I don't think Americans knew this or even know it today when they see the yeah. play but of course the puka is an irish is a yes, celtic of course yeah celtic legend and i'm sure that mary chase uh who had heard so many stories about you know the fairy road and various other kinds of um irish folklore um had this idea because no one else could have this idea only, only really a, a daughter of irish people could have this idea and so although the play is very american and uh, uh, in most respects, and she was not herself uh, born in Ireland. It, it undoubtedly comes out of that out of that yeah. tradition. When I saw the title of the matchmaker, I thought immediately of John B. Keane. But then I saw the writer was Thornton Wilder, who's incidentally whose uh, play, The Long Christmas Dinner, is happening in in the Peacock Theatre over the Christmas period uh, here here in Dublin. But the matchmaker by Thornton Wilder, I suppose, our town is what most people will know Thornton Wilder from. Certainly in this part of the world, what's the matchmaker about? Well, the matchmaker, which is based on a, a originally on an English play that was then uh, translated into German and very successful, all of this a century or so before, long time at least before Wilder got his hands on it, is is really a, a farce about a woman named Dolly. Well, her name is Dolly Gallagher Levi, but her maiden name is Dolly Gallagher. She's definitely an Irish 
uh, character who is a, a, a fixer of everything, according to her. She's a, she's a fixer-upper of everything from uh, broken hearts to broken lamps. Um, and she uh, she sets her sights on uh, in her capacity as a matchmaker on uh, on a on a very wealthy Yonkers merchant. Yonkers being a, a city outside New York City, um, uh, and she does this by promising to find him a great perfect wife. He's a widower, uh, and of course he little knows that the woman she has in mind is herself. And she actually invents a different woman so in order to sort of get him in the right position to do this. It's a very funny play. Wilder himself was not Irish at all. He, he comes from Scottish and, yeah. and, and English uh, um, roots. But the character of Dolly Gallagher, I think, was conceived as his vision of, uh, you know, an Irish widow uh, with a lot on her mind and a lot of uh, cleverness and imagination and invention. And does he um, do that? Does he do that in a way that doesn't laugh at the Irish? Because oftentimes, you know, the Irish, when represented by non-Irish writers, sometimes even by Irish writers, but by non-Irish <laughs> writers, you can get this kind of stereotype, you know, either the drinking Irish, the fighting Irish, or the the working woman Irish. You know, there are lots of stereotypes that I could put out there. Does Wilder avoid that? I think he does avoid it. And in fact, he never mentions, there is no mention in the play of the fact that she's Irish. Her name is Gallagher. Hmm. Uh, and and she's, a, uh, uh, I would say her main characteristic is a sort of slightly deceptive resourcefulness. Um, but she doesn't, at least to me, she doesn't read as a character who is, uh, you know, an Irish cliche of any kind. Yeah. And in fact, if her name had been uh, Dolly Johnson, you wouldn't even think of her as Irish. There is something... There's some twinkle there that I guess Wilder yeah. may have thought, you know, well, that's an Irish, kind of an Irish characteristic if there is such a thing. Yeah, and but I he's very delicate about it, very yeah. delicate. About and, it. and even as you describe it, there's a touch of, of, of a Scottish characteristic if there is such a thing <laughs> in there as well, isn't there? And the Gallagher would fit in with that as well. Finally, the, the third play that will be part of the, the weekend is Hogan's Goat, again, a very Irish sounding name. Uh, William Alfred is the writer here. William Alfred was a was a full time professor at Harvard and, in fact, was a professor of mine when I was an undergraduate there uh, right around the time that Hogan's Goat opened. It's a it's a play about the very of all of all three. This is the most obviously a play about the Irish in America, because all almost all the characters are Irish immigrants in 1890 Brooklyn, New York, um, one of whom thinks that he's going to seize the the mayor, uh, the mayor's job from the current mayor. Um, but he but he has a deep, dark secret, which gets revealed. And I think this was uh, this was Bill Alfred's attempt to write both a classic uh, Greek or Shakespearean tragedy and an American melodrama at the same time. It's written in it's actually written in verse. It's a verse play, although you when you hear it, you're not aware of it. Um, he worked on it for many years, but it is really a melodrama about the Irish in Brooklyn, mm. the 1890s, yeah. you know, political chicanery. Um, very, this one is very Irish. If, if 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 the matchmaker is the least Irish, this is the most Irish. Finally, Jack, for you, what is the benefit of revisiting texts like the three that you'll be speaking about with Gary at the weekend, Gary Hines at the weekend, uh, like the several musicals that you've spoken about in terms of encores, uh, and and I'm sure you have done this across not just Irish American plays and and musicals, you've done it across all sorts of genres and all sorts of styles. What is the benefit in revisiting this work, and what's the importance in keeping it alive? 
Well, I think continuity of where we are, uh, whose shoulders we're standing on, uh, is it's important in the sense that it explains to us as we work or as we watch plays, uh, listen to plays, how that how that ladder has been constructed over the years. And I think that uh, you can watch a play if you know nothing about plays and know nothing about the theater and don't really care about it and enjoy it enormously. But there is the, the, the continuity of where we've come from has something to do with where we're headed. We're either, we may be headed directly away from where we've come from, but it's still important to know where we've come from. And I think these plays, even though they go in and out of style, also just have a value uh, on their own. They they, they present, a, uh, in the case of these plays, a vision of, of the United States uh, at certain different times. Uh, and and we always said at Encores, every, every show we do, we do in three time periods. The period it was written in, the period that it's set in, and the period that you're watching it in. Yeah. yeah. And there is some value to being able to conflate those three periods and say, okay, this is who we were. This is who this is who William Alfred in 1967 thought we were in 1890, and we're watching it in 2022. What does that tell us about, you know, American life? And I think it yeah. tells us a lot. Yeah. Well, Jack, if the only the only gripe I have with you now is I am no longer going to refer to you as a sort of human encyclopedia of musical theater. I'm removing three words, sort of and musical, and I'm going to call you <laughs> a human encyclopedia of theater. Thanks so much for joining us this evening, Jack. Really interesting conversation. Thanks for being with us. And that's Jack Viertel and the Stars and Stripes Shaded Green. Uh, uh, this event to explore the Irish-American theatrical canon takes place at the McLally Theatre in Galway from Thursday the 17th through until Sunday the 20th of November. You can find out full details at druid.ie. You're listening to Tuesday Night Serena. Played once then. For all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. Oh, I can't remember it, Miss Elsa. I'm a little rusty on it. I'll hum it for you. You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you on that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Sam, I thought I told you never to play. I don't think he wanted to hear that song played again. Humphrey Bogart at the end of that clip there. Ingrid Bergman as Elsa. Dooley Wilson as Sam in that iconic scene from Casablanca. They're all iconic scenes really in Casablanca at this stage. It was released in cinemas in November 1942, 80 years ago this very month. And though it was a relatively modest performer at the box office when it opened, (laughs) as time went by... (laughs) 
<laughs> the film became an inarguable classic with almost every line of dialogue becoming quotable. To look back at the making of the film and to tease out why it holds such an unassailable place in cinema history, joined in studio by Paul Whittington. One of the most quoted films, mm. I think it's probably safe to say, probably one of the most misquoted films as well, yes, Paul, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, would they have had any idea when they were doing this film or no. ahead of November 1942 that we'd be talking about it 80 years later? No, certainly not, uh, Sean, because um, there's a myth that it was a B picture. It wasn't a B picture. It, it, it had a million dollar budget, which would have been quite big at the time. Michael Curtis was one of Warner Brothers' most valued directors and it had a ver- it had a ver- two very good screenwriters in the Epstein Brothers, but not much was expected of it. After Pearl Harbor, there was a rush to make these patriotic uh, films uh. to make you know Americans happy about the fact that they were now involving themselves in a war apparently without end in Europe. This was one of them. It was from a play by a guy called Murray Burnett and his wife which was unproduced and was considered a bit of dog's dinner by the Epsteins when they found it but just through a combination of circumstances and coincidences it became something very special Bergman Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey yeah. Bogart you know I mean, you say oh, yeah, that was great casting they couldn't go no. wrong could they No. They were, where were they at in their careers in 1942 they, they were both fairly Bogart wasn't unknown but he mm. had he had made his name playing a sort of as, as, as he would say himself a dirty rat in um, uh, the Warner Brothers gangster pictures in the 1930s opposite James Cagney he always played the kind of the, 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 the supposed colleague who's actually yeah. ripping him off and then he, he turns yellow at the end so he, he had done that and then a film called The Petrified Forest made him a, a star in the making kind of thing but people still thought, saw him as a villain which was a good choice for this character because he, he you know initially he's you know not interested in anybody else except himself Ingrid Bergman had made Intermezzo she'd been brought to Hollywood for that but she was not well known she was very beautiful obviously but she was two inches tall Bogart five foot eight on a good day and she was probably five foot ten uh, she, according to her he had to stand on blocks uh, opposite her in scenes people didn't really know them but they were perfectly cast, both of them. That chemistry, I mean... Yeah. I often wonder how... Is that purely accidental? How does that come about? How does it appear on screen? Or is it just they're good actors that can I act think, chemistry? I think in this case, anyway, it's acting. I mean, apparently... I'm, I, I don't think that people said they didn't hit it off. I'm not sure about that, because apparently, here's looking at you, kid, he made up um, while he was teaching her poker, so they, so, so they must have gone reasonably well. But I just think that um, the way the film worked, the, the way the film was made played into it, because it was made in secret, which is extremely unusual as you know Sean it was made in sequence and the reason for that was because the Epsteins started to write it then they had to go off to a Frank Capra film another uh, propaganda war film they came back the, the script wasn't finished so every day they would get their lines they didn't know it was going to happen in the end either Jeepers. so perhaps that helped it I suppose yeah, just uh, for those who just remind me of what Casablanca is all about again it's essentially a, a love triangle with a bit of politics thrown in yeah quite a lot of politics thrown in really um, uh, Rick Blaine uh, Humphrey Bogart's character is the owner of this nightclub in, in, in Casablanca apparently based on a, ni- a nightclub in the south of France and it's all very jolly uh, Vichy in theory controls mm. uh, Casablanca Blanca, but in fact, of course, the Nazis do because Vichy was a, a, a proxy yeah. state, uh, and uh, everybody comes to Ricks to to play cards and 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 drink and do various things. Uh, but the gambling gambling is illegal officially. So um, um, Claude Rains' character, um, Captain uh, Captain Renault, pretends uh, to be shocked whenever gambling is, and then somebody hands him his earnings. So it's sort of sort of sort of very glamorous den of iniquity, and then she walks in. Uh, Elsa walks in. 
And boy, is he not happy, as in Humphrey no, Bogart. He is no. not happy that she chose this particular place to come to, which gives us one of another, another of the uh, uh, iconic quotes from the film. I grab Ugarit and she walks in. Well, that's the way it goes. One in, one out. Sam. Yes, boss. It's December 1941 in Casablanca. What time is it in New York? What? My watch stopped. I bet they're asleep in New York. I bet they're asleep all over America. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. What's that you're playing? Oh, just a little something on my own. Oh, stop it. You know what I want to hear. No, don't. You played it for her, you play it for me. Well, I don't think I can remember. If she can stand it, I can. Play it. Yes, boss. thought that it was all lush well, strings and romance two things we should say about that yeah. clip first of all yeah. um, of all the gin joints obviously was the iconic yeah. line I was talking about play it that is the line that yeah. he says plays again Sam does not exist he yeah. never no, says play it again Sam as you said it's a very misquoted uh, film um, yeah, he's in Mind his cups. You, yeah, he's, sorry, he's, just he, he's, before sorry. I let you go, yeah. <laughs> if, if it's November 1941 in Casablanca, what time is it in New York? The, Whip smart dialogue. The, the, that's one of the many special things about yeah. the film. At one point, the, the, the villain, Major Strasse, asks um, Rick, what, what, how would you feel if they invaded his beloved New York? And he said, there are certain sections of New York I wouldn't advise you to invade. <laughs> so it's it's a brilliant screenplay. Yeah. Uh, Rick is in his cups there. He's yeah. he's he's um, uh, Because he has seen her, she also was his girlfriend in France they were having a lovely time in, in a, a Burbank version of Paris which appears early in the film and then she disappears he doesn't know why she doesn't she doesn't leave with him she doesn't get on the train and we then discover when she comes to Casablanca that she is the wife of Paul Heinrich's character Dulles Dishwater but a Czech resistance fighter and so it's a noble cause and that is the love triangle mm. and in the middle of it you have all these wonderful minor characters played by all these great European actors that's what I'm going to ask you to, to bring us yeah. into that it is is, I mean, the colour in the casting mm. is just phenomenal. The characters are, they're all just tiny little cameo roles, but brilliant actors yeah. and well fleshed out in terms of the character, the, the writing. I, well, in fact, in the writing and also the actors. I mean, obviously, Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre who were, were a great mm. double act in several in, in, in um, The Maltese Falcon to begin with and th th this comic peril. They don't really appear together in this. Peter Lorre was... 
uh, one of the great Weimar actors, uh, as was Conrad Weiss, who played Strasser, and he, he came to America. He was a, a great friend of Bogart's and was his, he played chess with him, but he always played baddies and uh, he plays the unfortunate Ugarte in this, who says to, to Rick at one point, you despise me, don't you, Rick? And, and, and he says, if I gave you any thought, I probably would. They, they, the, the, um, the croupier, the, the guy who says he's yeah, just sans fait, he's Marcel Dalio, who was a great Renoir actor and he had fled from France because the Nazis used a photo of him to depict the ideal, the typical Jew. So there's a lot of emotion underneath yeah. the surface in this film. And as I mentioned, Conrad Weiss, who, who plays this very, quite one-dimensional villain in this, he was Major a wonderful... Strasse. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are performances all over the place and little details. There's Carl, who, 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 who uh, is accountant in the club, who's this, who's this bumbling character. It's just... It, the, the, it, the Epstein said that the film had uh, contained more corn than Iowa and Kansas combined, but it also had the sense of sort of, of of reality of real people within it somehow it's yeah, strange no, mix it's it, 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 well, you look at it you, you couldn't but you just watch it time after yeah, time anytime it's, it's on it, 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 there's something in it every time you look at it but we're also uh, important to remember here even this idea that she could be a married woman um, yeah. uh, as she is to, to the Paul Heinemann character uh, that she's married to him and that she could even be looking half sideways at yeah. Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Because we're we're in the midst of the Hayes Code here, aren't we? Really? Yes, we are. Yeah, the, 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 the roaring 20s and early 30s are over and um, Joseph Breen, who is uh, an Irish-American Catholic and, and, and a fundamentalist too, um, he, he, he had his eye on everything and they, they subtly changed the script, but not that much. And it kind of got away with it because of the... The 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 uh, you know the the pro war theme and that was hammered home not very uh, subtly at times obviously at the uh, um, uh, Captain Reno who who's this kind of you know rather venal Vichy uh, uh, official yeah I um, he, he has a volt fast towards the end of the film and he symbolises that he's changed sides by throwing a bottle of sparkling Vichy water into the bin uh, so the, the the politics are are, are rather yeah. clunky but it's also charming it doesn't well, listen to how uh, in the, the towards the end of the film famous fan scenes mm. uh, how romance politics everything war everything is brought together in an amazing speech from Humphrey Bogart we'll hear Claude Rains in the midst of all of this as well and Ingrid Bergman is here too if you don't mind you fill in the names that'll make it even more official you think of everything don't you and the names are Mr. and Mrs. Victor Laszlo but why my name Richard because you're getting on that plane I don't understand. What about you? I'm staying here with him till the plane gets safely away. No, Richard, no. What has happened to you? Last night Last you said... Last night a... we said a great many things. You said I was to do the thinking for both of us. Well, I've done a lot of it since then. It all adds up to one thing. You're getting on that plane with Victor where you belong. But, Richard, no one... Now, but... you've got to listen to me. Do you have any idea what you'd have to look forward to if you stayed here? Nine chances out of ten, we'd both wind up at a concentration camp. Isn't that true, Louis? I'm afraid, Major Strauss, I would insist. You're saying this only to make me go. I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never leave you. And you never will. But I've got a job to do, too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Ilza, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. 
looking at you, kid. Still my tiny beating heart and we'll always have Paris, Sean. Yeah, we'll always have Paris. And if you've got the Kleenex, because that's what, that's, what, that's what that seat. Like, I mean, yeah. no matter how many times you hear it, you think it's so heroic. And as Sinead producer was funny, she calls him Richard. Yes, which is like her pet name all, for him, yeah. 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 And yet it could have all ended so differently. Yeah, there was nearly a different ending, wasn't there? Yeah, no, there were several different movie endings um, that, that um, Humphrey Bogart got shot. It be, because they thought that his sudden heroism might be unbelievable. Right, yeah. uh, that he leaves with her because it's Hollywood, and you know <laughs> he he has to get the girl. But and, and they they even had a, a another scene tacked on with him and Claude Rains on a boat going to war. But they decided against that because they couldn't. Sure, they would never have got to say this could be a beautiful friendship. No, and then yeah, they got Bogart in to say that that that, that, that was a dub that was added on. Yeah, because they're walking away yeah, with their yeah, backs to the camera yeah. when but when that so, dialogue so happens. you know perfection. It's it seems like, but it was it was accidental. As was a lot of this film. A lot of happy chances came together in this film. All right, I said that it wasn't a big hit when when it opened. No, so you're starter for ten, Paul Whittington. Why <laughs> why is it apart from the fact that it's a brilliant film? But why has it you know lasted, and why has does it have the status that it now enjoys? Despite the fact that it was so set bound and you can see it, like the plane at the end is actually a little model plane that they had to use the fog to hide. It's because of the, 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 this this glorious combination of of great actors going for it, melodrama, wit, um, th- this this emotion that pulls you in, and perhaps the underlying emotion in that scene of the Marseillaise, mm-hmm. uh, uh, where 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 oh, a lot yeah. of expatriates are are singing it, a lot of French people are in that, and a lot of displaced Europeans. So there's there's real emotion underneath it. There's loads going on it's a lovely film alright it is certainly is that and thanks so much for, for coming in and giving us, your, giving us your thoughts on it this evening that's Paul Whittington on Casablanca made 80 years ago believe it or not in November released in cinemas in November 1942 Tchaikovsky's Christmas Ballet The Nutcracker has been a seasonal favourite since the mid 20th century this year Ballet Ireland are bringing an Irish twist to the 130 year old tale Nutcracker Sweeties follows the, follows the story of Kira and her brother Fionn who wander off from their parents in a Dublin department store while out Christmas shopping this is when the magic of the Nutcracker begins the pair are rescued by the Nutcracker doll who comes to life transporting them to the magical kingdom of the sweets where the two meet the majestic sugar plum fairy the world class cast are currently on a 14 venue tour of Ireland which runs this tour right through until December the 23rd. Ahead of the opening at the Gaiety Theatre, we're joined by Nutcracker Sweetie's composer, Tom Lane. Now, you haven't recomposed the, the whole ballet here, Tom. It no. still is Tchaikovsky's music, for the most part. We'll come to what you've done with it, yeah, uh, Short. Right. It's still Tchaikovsky's music that yeah. we're playing. We were talking about Casablanca being 80 years old, Nutcracker 130 years old. Tchaikovsky, was he playing straight into a, a Christmas market even when he composed the ballet back then? Um, as far as I know, the piece yeah it was originally composed as a ballet to go alongside an opera, and uh, at the time it wasn't a huge success, um, even though um, the music was very popular. But then mm. I think he he popularised the music um, following the ballet, and then it became more successful, as you said, later in the twentieth century. And I guess it yeah, the, the Nutcracker Suite is probably better known than which is essentially the yeah. music of the ballet, That's but right, put yeah. together in yeah. in in little pieces. It 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 it, and I guess part of that sweet aspect is. All the flavours, literally, mm. that Tchaikovsky gives you across mm. the characteristic dances and, and, and um, things like that within the work. Yeah. What do you think uh, has helped this particular ballet mm. stand the test of time so well? Um, I think 
partly the fact that it's uh, takes place at Christmas, and you know, Christmas is a very uh, festive time of year, and mm. um, people are up for going to see a ballet that time of year. Uh, it's a really captivating magical tale. Uh, the music is a huge part of it. Um, every every piece you hear from it is just a, an amazing tune, and we've heard it so many times in in films and adverts mm. and all over the place. Um, and yeah, it's just it's a wonderful score that's fantastic to dance to as well. Yeah, and now. Uh, <laughs> You've added some material yeah. to to this, That's right. um, not least of which is a Hoover. That's right. So, um, as you said, um, the choreographer Morgan Runnicker Temple she updated the piece, and it's taking place in a famous Dublin department store, uh, which used to be located on O'Connell Street. Um, uh, and um, one of the ideas Morgan had was to update the kind of magical world of the original ballet into the magical world of um, consumerism, and uh, the kind of exciting products that were available for the first time in the 1920s. So uh, one of those is a Hoover and one of those is a, a radio, for example. All right. So do you, can you add mm. these aspects into the, right, to yeah. the, and, and are they performed live on the night or are they a sound effect or what happens? Yeah, so the, the, the Hoover, Hoover is um, recorded sound of a Hoover, uh, which we've added into the music. And then um, it's, it's closely um, uh, synchronized with the, with the action on stage mm. of, a, of a sort of a Hoover dance where they're trying to control the, this new, this new technology that's <laughs> running yeah. away with itself. Yeah. Let's have a little piece, uh, let's let listen to a, a section of that. So there we have a, a little section of the, what is and what is the music behind the Hoover dance in uh, Ballet Ireland's production Nutcracker Sweeties, which is touring the country at the moment and coming to the Gaiety Theatre uh, in the next while. So uh, as I was saying when we were listening to that, Tom, Tom Lane, the, the, you've adapted and worked around the music of Tchaikovsky here. Right. And that section, particularly dramatic, really, the, yeah. the, that that we get. Mm. Um, how how did you feel about adding little bits into mm. Tchaikovsky's music? I mean, it kind of, it, it's fairly, iconic isn't it it is yeah well um we were trying to sort of set the scene um uh, of of the location and the time so that was one element of it sort of bringing a more sort of cinematic approach to mm. the piece um and then also um if you, if you look at kind of the way uh, Tchaikovsky was working he was kind of adding new sounds and looking for new orchestrations all the time for example the uh, celesta is an instrument that um he not exactly not exactly discovered but he was one of the first people to use it it's a sort of steel bar operated piano um, and it's very famously used in the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. Well, it's not a good enough reason yeah. as any to exactly, hear yeah. a little bit yeah. of uh, Celeste. It takes a while for it to actually get going because the, the strings are pizzicatoing away in the background. But eventually we get that lovely, yeah. tinkly, magical tinkly yeah. sound of the Celeste. Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. How is that adapted for the for the production that we that we'll be seeing, Tom? That piece, well, so um, 
the in the department store where they find they find themselves. Um, they they find themselves locked up uh, accidentally overnight and they fall asleep and they wake up in this magical world. Um, and for example, the Nutcracker comes to life. Um, who is uh, there's the Nutcracker toy, but then also a mannequin. So the Sugar Plum Fairy is also another one of these mannequins that comes to life in the department store. And I think Morgan actually found a really um, uh, great language of you know uh, this this kind of magical world of a department store mm. where. Um, all kinds of things could happen because there's all these different departments and all different worlds that, that things can take place in. One thing Tchaikovsky, he might have thought about, you know, human beings becoming the characters and coming to life. That kind of makes sense. He That may have mm. been in his imagination. He yeah. won't have imagined a hurling player. Yeah, that's right. So uh, another iconic piece of music, there's just endless amounts mm. of them. Uh, the tre- trepak or the Russian dance. Um, uh, it's originally very sort of athletic and yeah. sort of jumping dance and we've adapted into a... Um, it's it's sort of the, the sport the, uh, section of the department store, and so we have a the sounds of a hurling match going on. Well, hurling in the <laughs> background uh, to this piece of music. time I hear that music I am um, <laughs> I think it's time for Christmas and get out and do the shopping and all the rest of it uh, the, the trepak the they dance from the the nutcracker there and it will be used uh, as part of the uh, Irish National Ballet's uh, nutcracker sweeties but finally you're, you're going to be part of the weir uh, opening at the Abbey you're right, involved yeah. in that production what are you doing there the Conor McPherson play uh, I'm the composer and musical direction uh, director for that production uh, we're just finishing rehearsals now going to technical rehearsals next week uh, so we have uh, two live musicians in that piece as well. Yeah, I believe music yeah. is going to be a big part yeah. of this this new production. With is, yeah. is, who, who's directing? Uh, Katrina McLaughlin. Mm. Um, so it's really exciting. Uh, it's the production, and yeah, the musical element is adding a whole other kind of layer uh, to the piece. Um, and so yeah, it's going to be very very exciting. We can't give too much away, but it's it's going to be right. great. We're kind of right in the midst of it at the moment. Yeah. Okay, well, really looking forward to to seeing uh, that when the time comes. Thanks for right. coming in to us this evening, uh, Tom. That's Tom Lane, uh, composer, and he's talking to us uh, briefly there about the weir, but also about Nutcracker Sweeties, the Irish twist on the 130-year-old Tchaikovsky Ballet, the Nutcracker, currently on a 14-venue uh, tour around the country. Tomorrow night, the production opens at the Getty Theatre. Full information on dates, go to balletireland.ie.